Hello and welcome back to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts that's all about Scotland's history. You've never guessed, would you? Uh, my name is Daniel. Daniel Downey, I'm your host, I'm a stand-up comedian based in Edinburgh and I do a thing in the city, it's called the, the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh and what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now the reason I'm telling you this is because that's what this podcast is, that's what these series of podcasts are all about, as I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully as you listen to this podcast you'll learn a bit and you'll laugh a bit as well. Uh, this is it, series two, we've had a couple of months off, not to worry though, I've written loads of new podcast episodes i've got loads of montebank bullets in the chamber you can expect your same mix of scottish history and tory bashing and jobby jokes maybe just a a slightly different strain however you know because when we left off we had one strain now we've come back we've got loads of different strains they tell me that boris johnson had the original strain although i'm fairly certain that actually had the kent strain because the guy is a massive kent Now listen, if this is the first time you've listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, right, I've put that joke in nice and early because that's pretty much exactly what you should expect from this podcast, all right? Uh, If you like your history with lots of jobby jokes and Tory bashing, it's for you. If not, then you're, I don't know, Dan Snow's history hit. That might be where you might want to go from here. Anyway, the first few episodes of the new series, they're going to be all about Mary, Queen of Scots. If you don't know much about Mary, Mary is the most written about figure from Scottish history. Mary, she was pasty white. She was ginger. She lived around the golf. She lived a bevy. She took zero shit off of her Presbyterian men. She was married three times. She was accused of murdering one of her husbands. She spent most of her adult life in prison and was eventually murdered by a family member. Basically, what I'm saying is Mary, Queen of Scots, is the most Scottish person who has ever existed. All right, that woman is an absolute hero of mine, folks. And episode one, today's episode is all going to be is going to be about the rough wings, which isn't just Alex Salmon's idea of flirting. It was also a, a series of brutal raids into Scotland by England's ultra gammon monarch Henry VIII. And what he was trying to do he was trying to bully Scotland into a, a marriage pact through kind of intimidation and violence, kind of Phil Mitchell style, I suppose. Now anyway, if this is the first time that you have listened to the podcast, um, I always suggest that folk go back to the beginning. Each episode, they all go chronologically, they give a wee bit of background into the one that follows it. They're all named, so if you want to like jump in at William Wallace or Robert the Bruce, you can do that. Um, it's great to be back. I do hope you enjoy the episode, folks. Have fun out there, and I shall see you all on the other side. Enjoy! Mary was born in Linlithgow Palace on the 8th of December 1542. Not that the people of Linlithgow ever mentioned that, you know. Uh, she was born in the Queen's apartments where her father, James V, had been born 30 years earlier and where her mother, Marie de Guise, had given birth to two sons, James and Arthur, both of whom didn't survive infancy. A few days after her birth, Mary was christened in the Kirk of St Michael, adjoining the palace, and she was nursed at Linlithgow for, for nine months before being moved to the, the security of Stirling Castle. Mary was crowned Queen of Scots in the Chapel Royal at Stirling Castle, on the 9th of September 1543, the 30th anniversary of the Battle of Flodden, the most disastrous military defeat in Scottish history. So Mary, right, she'd been born in the same room as her recently deceased father, the same room as her dead infant brothers, and was then coronated on the anniversary of the most disastrous military defeat in Scottish history. I mean, 
I'm no one for looking at the signs or anything, right? But is it any wonder that Mary's life turned out so disastrously? I, I know that the Stuarts are famed for being cursed, but my God, they, they didn't help themselves, do they? Immediately, two factions emerge struggling for power through possession of the Queen's person. Two groups that wanted the regency of the kingdom to rule the kingdom in place of the infant Mary. There was the Protestant reformers who favoured an alliance with England and Henry VIII, who was Mary's great uncle, who had made the split from the Catholic Church in 1534, and there was a Catholic faction who wanted a renewal of Scotland's old alliance with France, which was backed by Mary's French mother, Marie de Guise. As difficult as it is to imagine Scotland nearly 500 years ago, it was uh, Protestants against Catholics, a country split by religion. Almost impossible to picture, right? Now, the obvious choice for regent was James Hamilton, the Earl of Arran, who was the eldest surviving descendant of James II's daughter Mary and the heir presumptive. Basically meant uh, if Mary died, he would become king. Arran may have been heir presumptive, but the first move for the regency was made by Cardinal David Beaton, who in a move completely out with that of a clergyman of the Catholic Church, desperately wanted the possession of a child. David uh, Beaton, he had succeeded his uncle, Archbishop James Beaton. Now, James Beaton is the man who famously had the Protestant reformer Patrick Hamilton burned at the stake in 1528. And David Beaton, he was equally as enthusiastic about burning Protestants. In 1546, David Beaton had the Protestant reformer George Wishop burned at the stake. They just loved burning heretics. They loved burning Protestants, the Beatons, until that... Fun sponge Greta Thunberg got involved and said it was bad for the environment and that they should stop it right away. Apparently, burning Protestants is even worse for the environment than fracking. Now, David Beaton, he produced a will that was supposedly signed by James V on the day of his death and it stated that a regency should be made up of Cardinal David Beaton, the Earl of Huntley, the Earl of Argyll and the Earl of Murray. Hamilton, the heir presumptive, wasn't mentioned at all. And David Beaton, he duly appointed himself Chancellor of Scotland on the 10th of January 1543. Henry VIII's response was to release the Scottish nobles who had been captured at the Battle of Solway Moss, which was fought in November 1542. It was a Scottish defeat just before the death of James V. Now, what he did was he provided these defeated Scottish nobles with sizable funds and titles and then sent them back to Scotland to now represent the needs of the English king in Scotland. So what he had was a bunch of upper-class Scottish types easily enticed by English handouts willing to fuck over the needs of their own country to promote English interests in Scotland. It was the beginnings of the Scottish Conservative Party basically. And they were led by Archibald Douglas, the Earl of Angus. Now, Angus wasn't one of those nobles who had fought at Solway Moss. He had been the stepfather of James V. He had married James IV's widow, Margaret Tudor, after James IV died at the Battle of Flodden. But he was then banished to England by James V when he began his personal rule in 1528. So in 1543, Angus returned to Scotland at the head of this pro-English faction that had been sent by Henry VIII. And they had David B arrested for producing what they claimed was a fraudulent will of James V. Now, Beaton, he protested, showing him the free carriage clock that James had received when he had taken out his policy, when he had written his will. But it was to no avail. He was arrested, removed as Chancellor, and James Hamilton, the heir presumptive, the Earl of Arran, he was appointed the Regent and Governor in his place. The new pro-English Protestant-heavy Parliament introduced the first Protestant ecclesiastical reforms in Scotland. It sanctioned the ownership and reading of scriptures in the vernacular. Now, before, 
all scripture had to be read in Latin, but the Protestants felt it was important that people could read the Bible in English. But it kind of backfired because now that people could understand, they could read the Bible, they realised that, I mean, it still made fuck all sense, you know? And second on the agenda for this new pro-English government was a, a marriage alliance between Mary and Henry VIII's five-year-old son, Edward. Now, Mary, she had a strong claim to the English throne through her grandmother, Margaret Tudor, James IV's queen. And if the Tudor line failed with Henry VIII, it meant that the Stuart dynasty would inherit and Mary would become Queen of England. A marriage alliance, however, between Mary and Edward tied her future with his and would ensure the future of the House of Tudor. Henry VIII, though, he was an aggressive negotiator and his demands were plentiful. He had no interest in a kind of union of equal, in a inverted commas, family of nations. He wanted a union whereby one side dominated the other, a bit like Richard and Judy. And so he insisted that Scotland should renounce its old alliance with France, Mary be immediately sent to England to be raised, and the castles of Edinburgh, Dunbar, Dumbarton, Stirling and Tantallon be surrendered to England. Westminster felt that it was entitled to Scotland's most important assets. Hard to imagine, I know. Now, these terms, they were deemed unacceptable to Scotland, who insisted that it must retain its independence and Mary must be brought up in Scotland. English tap water deemed not befitting of a Scottish queen. So Henry backed down and two treaties were drawn up in Greenwich in July 1543. One was a makeshift peace treaty between Scotland and England and the other was a marriage arrangement. Uh, basically said that Mary was to be betrothed to Prince Edward in 1552 when Mary would be 10 and Edward 15. And at that point, Mary would then go and live in England. And if they had a child, that child would inherit both kingdoms, meaning that the signing of the treaties in Greenwich was essentially an agreement to a union of the crowns. Henry VIII's heavy-handedness had not gone down well in Scotland. He was being such a dick that even Fox News had turned against them. And many of the pro-English faction now switched to the pro-French faction. And at this point, two prominent nobles who had been living in exile in France returned to Scotland. One was John Hamilton, the Abbot of Paisley and later Archbishop of St Andrews, the Earl of Arran's half-brother, and the other was Matthew Stuart, the Earl of Lennox, who was next in line to the throne after the Earl of Arran. The return of these men was a significant boost to the pro-French Catholic faction. David Beaton, he was released from prison, and on the 26th of July 1543, Marie de Guise took the opportunity to move a seven-month-old Mary from Linlithgow Palace to the security of Stirling Castle under the guard of 2,500 cavalry and 1,000 infantry. Marie de Guise took her child under guard to Stirling Castle to escape the clutches of Mary's predatory great-uncle. It is exactly why Wills and Kate live in Kensington Palace and why Harry and Meghan fucked off to the other side of the world with their Wayne just so they could keep them away from their predatory great-uncle. The Earl of Arran had initially supported the marriage between Mary and Edward, but as next in line to the throne, he had a far better shot at becoming king should the kingdom remain independent. Now, his behaviour as regent has been called into question. It's hard to tell whether he was weak and easily influenced or whether he was doing that act like a bumbling fucking idiot and hopefully it'll pay off thing that Boris Johnson does. Although, to be fair, he's a bumbling fucking idiot who is also very weak and easily influenced. 
But Aaron, he at this point offered his own son as a potential suitor for Mary, seeing that the marriage alliance with England was likely to break down. And Henry VIII, seeing pro-French Catholic support grow in Scotland, he tried to regain Aaron's support with an enticing marriage offer between his teenage daughter Elizabeth, the future Elizabeth I, and Aaron's son. Now, offering uh, a teenage, underage bride is the sort of offer that an English royal wouldn't be able to turn down. But Aaron, he wasn't persuaded, and on the 8th of September 1543, he was granted absolution for his, inverted commas, reformist sins, and received back into the Catholic Church and the governments of Scotland. The next day, it was Aaron who bore the crown at Mary's coronation in the Chapel Royal at Stirling Castle. By December 1543, the English Parliament had failed to ratify the Treaties of Greenwich. Not getting shit done, it's what Westminster does best. So the Scottish Parliament rejected the agreements and instead reasserted the old alliance with France. Scotland rejected an alliance with the ultra-gammon leader of England in favour of closer ties with Europe. I am still talking about 1543, by the way. Cardinal Beaton, he was appointed Chancellor once again, and Arran remained regent, although he was now advised by a council of 16 headed up by Marie de Guise and Cardinal Beaton. And under pressure from Beaton, the penal laws for heresy they were renewed, and instead of marrying Prince Edward, Mary would instead be married to the 26-year-old Matthew Stewart, Earl of Lennox, who had recently returned from France. Now, a 26-year age gap is a hell of an age gap. That is quite literally a lifetime in Scotland. Although, such an age gap, it wasn't deemed inappropriate by the by the Royal Stuarts. As the head of the clan, Sir Rod Stuart, he was, he was married to a woman at least 30 years younger than him. Now, in the end, Mary didn't marry Lennox, but she would marry Lennox's son, Henry Darnley, 22 years later. Henry VIII's reaction to the Greenwich Treaties not being ratified in Scotland was the Rough Wings, a series of devastating English raids into Scotland between 1544 and 1549. Such was their severity, such was their brutality, that Henry VIII's Rough Wings united the entire Scottish kingdom, even those who had favoured a marriage alliance with England, against him, against the English invaders. Henry VIII's heavy-handedness united an entire country against him. Something Boris Johnson would be well served to remember when he refuses to allow Scotland its democratic right to decide its own future, or when he breaks international law to undermine our devolution, or when he insults our first minister, or when he says a pound spent in Croydon is worth more than a pound spent in Strathclyde. I mean, pretty much everything that comes out of that guy's mouth makes him as unpopular in Scotland as Henry VIII, and the I mean, they certainly have a lot in common, don't they? You know, fat, gammon, women-hating, anti-Europe, and only the worst, most unsufferable pricks like them. Although, to be fair, comparing Boris Johnson to Henry VIII is a bit of a stretch. You know, it's like comparing him to Darth Vader. Like, being evil just isn't enough. I mean, can you imagine Boris Johnson trying to run the Death Star? You can hardly take over the universe when you can't trace your enemies and your stormtroopers are either dead or self-isolating in an intergalactic travel lodge. In May 1544, England unleashed its most formidable veteran soldier, Captain Tom, who came at us on his Zimmer frame. And at the same time, another veteran soldier, Edward Seymour, the Earl of Hartford, who was Henry VIII's brother-in-law. Hartford was Henry VIII's third wife, Jane Seymour's brother. He landed with 16,000 men at New Haven on the Firth of Forth after hearing the chippy there was really decent. And while they destroyed the port of Leith by tearing up the streets, introducing an unwelcome, expensive and unnecessary tram system and systematically gentrifying 
every decent pub in Leith into a £6 a pint hellhole, an even larger army marched up through the borders, and they laid waste to every town and village in their path, destroying the great border abbeys of Drydborough, Jedborough, Kelso, Melrose and Titmus. For two days, Edinburgh burned, its inhabitants were massacred. Although, you know, let's be honest here, we've all had the massacre the residents of Edinburgh fantasy before, haven't we? And Holyrood Palace and Abbey were sacked. Only the castle held out from the invaders as they couldn't afford the entrance fee. Marie de Guise had Mary moved to Dunkeld for her safety as Hartford moved on Stirling. But short of Stirling, Hartford turned back to England, leaving a force in place to continue the devastation of the borders. Now, the first of the rough wings, it was intended to be a punitive raid, but since Henry VIII was also campaigning in France, the ferociousness of the first attack was also designed to stop Scotland from attacking the north of England as part of its old alliance with France. Shortly before Henry VIII launched the first of his rough wooings, Matthew Stewart, the Earl of Lennox, he changed sides. Henry VIII, he promised to appoint Lennox Lieutenant of the Northern Counties of England and of Southern Scotland, and promised him the governorship of Scotland once it was conquered. It's the same deal that Boris Johnson is offering to Douglas Ross if he too can somehow take down the Scottish Parliament. And he was given the hand of Lady Margaret Douglas in marriage. Now, Margaret Douglas was the daughter of Margaret Tudor by her second husband, the Earl of Angus. This meant that their son, Henry, who was born on the 7th of December 1545, had a strong claim to the English throne. And when Darnley married Mary in 1565, he kind of has gone down in Scottish history as one of its most notorious arseholes. Now, in exchange for all these English goodies, Lennox, he surrendered Dumbarton Castle to the English and gave the Isle of Bute to be used as an English naval base. So here you have this guy, he's betrayed his country. He's handed over one of its most iconic castles to the enemy, as well as a fucking island. And his son was one of Scottish history's biggest arseholes. He himself was a traitor. And yet, despite this, his family were still considered successful and Darnley would somehow become king. I mean, they really were the Trumps of the 16th century, the Lennoxes. But Lennox, he wasn't alone in his treachery. Henry, he was able to bribe and bully other Scottish Tories, sorry, nobles, into offering their allegiance as well. The violence of the rough wings and the treachery of those Scottish nobles who swore allegiance to Henry VIII only added to the antagonism that was felt towards England and Scotland. It even forced the Earl of Angus, Lennox's new father-in-law, a long-time supporter and pensioner of Henry VIII, the man who had headed up the group of pro-English-Scottish nobles that Henry had released back into Scotland in 1543, to change sides. On the 27th of February 1545 at the Battle of Akram Moor, a 5,000 strong English army was defeated near Melrose by a Scottish force half the size that was led by the Earl of Angus. Lennox, he responded by ravaging Ayrshire and Renfrewshire, while Hartford, he destroyed the year's harvest in the autumn of 1545. And he did this through impossible red tape, by introducing impossible red tape tariffs and an operating model that was published just hours before ridiculous rules were put in place, leaving Scottish foodstuff rotting in lorries, unable to make it to the EU, and decimating an entire industry. Actually, do you know what? I think I'm getting this, yeah... I'm getting this mixed up with the the Scottish fishing industry at the moment. Although, you know, you have to say, Boris Johnson, he has done a better job of fucking us up with his ridiculous hard Brexit than Hartford ever managed. I mean, 
destroying a Scottish harvest. How do you even do that? Turnips are indestructible. You'd need a nuclear weapon to take a turnip out. Although, thankfully, or handily, that's uh, that's another thing that Westminster has given us as well. In the background of the rough wooings, the Scottish Reformation continued to rumble away. Events intensified when Cardinal David Beaton had the Protestant heretic George Wishaw burned at the stake in February 1546. Now, Beaton, he was an object of loathing for many. His greed and corruption were excessive even by the standards of the Catholic Church in the middle of the 16th century, which, I mean, is really saying something. You know, that would be like being the most morally bankrupt member of Boris Johnson's cabinet. No mean feat at all, that. And Beaton, he had amassed a a sizable personal fortune. He had three houses and lived with several different women. He had no fewer than 20 illegitimate children, all of whom were supported by the church. And the revulsion of Beaton, it came to a head when he had Wishot killed in February 1546. Now, George Wishot, he was a, a charismatic young preacher who openly preached the gospel of reform to common folk and gentry alike in packed congregations across the country. And Beaton... He saw Wishaw as nothing more than an English agent, so he had him arrested and arranged a lengthy show trial at St Andrew's Cathedral in February 1546. Wishaw, he defended himself so eloquently that the authorities had the court cleared before delivering their guilty verdict. Wishaw, he was strangled and then burnt at the stake in the forecourt of St Andrew's Castle in March 1546. And it didn't go down well. Killing a young lad for showing how morally vacant and corrupt you are. It would be like Boris Johnson having Marcus Rashford burned at the stake. And for added spectacle, Beaton had sewn gunpowder into Wishart's clothing, which, by the way, is the only way to make a shell suit even more flammable, for the benefit of the invited audience of nobles and clerics that Beaton had invited to his execution. I mean, I wonder what that invite read like. Do you know what I mean? Like, you are cordially invited to the exploding of George Wishaw. B-Y-O-B. I don't know. Smart casual, some shit like that. Now, I have to admit, right, one thing I am on board with, on, with, with David Beaton with this one, is the overkill. Because as someone who was a, a teacher for 12 years, they were kids that I taught in my career what I would consider burning them alive just not mean enough. Do you know what I mean? I would want them exploded to death as well. The response to the death of George Wishaw was pretty brutal. A group of Protestant lairds known as the Castilians disguised themselves as stonemasons and entered St Andrew's Castle on the evening of the 29th of May 1546. I mean, security must have been extra tight that night. Eh, like a, <laughs> a big bunch of stonemasons you've never seen before arrive to carry out some work at night time and you're just like, aye, crack on, lads. Do you know what I mean? That's some serious G4S stuff right there. Like, the, the Tories would definitely be handing them a, a lucrative security contract, that law. And they broke into Beaton's bedchamber where he was with his current mistress, Marion Ogilvy. Beaton was dragged from the room, butchered and mutilated. His genitals were cut off and stuffed in his mouth. Which is ironic because, I mean, that is exactly what Cardinal David Beaton had been trying to teach himself to do for years, you know. He was then hanged from the window where he had watched Wishot's execution. His body was pickled in a barrel of brine and then placed in the castle's infamous bottle dungeon. Like, I'd love to know the thought process there. Like, let's let's cut off his balls. Yeah. And, and stick him in his mouth. Yeah, let's hang him in the window so everyone can see him. Yeah, aye, let's pickle him. What? Aye, let's let's pickle him. Uh, okay, all right. Aye, let, let, let's let's pickle him, right, and then stick his body in the basement. 
<laughs> Aye, alright, okay, fine, fuck it, let's do that. The Castilians held St Andrew's Castle and pleaded for support from an ailing Henry VIII, but he refused the request, presumably because he recognised Beaton was as big a shagger as he was. And on the 28th of January, 1547, Henry VIII died, prompting bigger celebrations in Scotland than when Margaret Thatcher died. Henry was succeeded by his nine-year-old son, Edward VI. And just two months after Henry's death, Francois I also died, and he was succeeded by his eldest son, the powerful and ambitious Henri II, whose main advisors were Charles and Francis de Guise, the brothers of Marie de Guise, Mary's uncles. And one of Henri II's first acts as king was to send a French naval force to bombard St Andrew's Castle in support of Marie de Guise. And on the 31st of July 1546, the Castilians surrendered St Andrew's Castle. The low-ranking members, they were sentenced to be slaves in French rowing galleys. And the higher-ranking middle-class nobles, they were given peloton bikes and made to race each other while imprisoned in France. In return for French support against the rough wings, Henri II wanted a marriage alliance between Mary and his son Francois, who was a year younger than her. And Henry VIII's attempts at this point to batter Scotland into accepting a marriage pact with England had, by the time of his death in January 1547, cost an eye-watering amount and was a complete failure because Scotland now looked far more likely to make a marriage pact with France rather than England. But nevertheless... Despite Henry VIII's death, England's policy towards Scotland remained steadfast. The Earl of Hertford, now made Duke of Somerset, became Lord Protector of England for the nine-year-old King Edward VI. Now, Lord Protector, it's like a role you get in England when you rule in place of a leader who's either too young or incapable of ruling on their own. It's the role that Dominic Cummings used to do, basically. And under Somerset, the rough wounds continued more ferociously than ever. In the late summer of 1547, the Duke of Somerset marched into Scotland with an army of 25,000, supported by a fleet of ships providing supplies and floating batteries. This was to be no rough wooing. This force was sent to Scotland to conquer it, not to punishment. An army of 25,000 sent to Scotland to take over the capital, or fringe performers, as we would call them these days. By Friday the 9th of September, the English army had reached Pinky near Musselburgh in East Lothian where a sizeable force of around 35,000 stood in their way, but the Scots lacked the heavy cavalry and heavy guns of the English army. Somerset, he brought his fleet to the mouth of the Esk River where they could bombard the Scots at will, but he didn't want to attack the Scottish defences and so instead, Somerset, he waited for the Scots to come down from their strong position knowing that they couldn't resist a square go on a Friday night. The Scots' cavalry duly obliged and when they had all crossed the river, he ordered the attack. The Scots' cavalry were obliterated and the following morning, Somerset ordered the advance. The naval guns and heavy artillery forced the earls of Huntley, Arran and Argyle to send their lightly armoured troops on the attack in a tightly packed phalanx that was then cut to pieces. It was a worse Scottish tactical display than Craig Levine's 460. The survivors, they headed for the River Esk where they were pursued by the triumphant English army. 14,000 Scots were killed on the banks of the Esk compared with only 250 English. That is an aggregate score of 13,750 nil. 
And that's not even the biggest tanking we've taken off of England. Do you know what I mean? Like, getting our arses handed to us by England was becoming about as Scottish as a tannock's tea cake. Pinky was yet another disastrous and tragic military defeat at the hands of the English just five years after Solway Moss and 34 years after Flodden. After victory at Pinky, Somerset occupied Leith, he ravaged Holyrood, but he made no attempt at the castle. The purpose of this invasion, it was to instil full-time English garrisons in key positions in Scotland as an army of occupation. The English fleet, it was sent to bombard Dundee, which was almost completely destroyed. Fife was harried, Dumfries taken, and a new English fort was built at Eyemouth in East Lothian. Somerset, he returned to the plaudits of the English Parliament and the grateful thanks of King Edward VI, whereas southeast Scotland was now effectively turned into an English shire. An outrageous change of pace for Edinburgh, East Lothian and the borders. The day after the disastrous defeat at Pinkie, Mary, she was taken from Dunkeld to Inchahome Priory, built on an island in the middle of the Lake of Menteith for her safety. Now, the, the Lake of Menteith is Scotland's only lake, and it's Scotland's only lake because it's named after Sir John Menteith, and this was the man who had betrayed William Wallace, and he is deemed as not being worthy of having a loch named after him. So that's why he's a lake. Now, a lot is made here, right, of our favourite use of the C word and how that's basically just a punctuation mark here in Scotland, right? But the last thing you do not want to be called in Scotland is a lake. <laughs> if you call someone a lake in Scotland, that's, that's like the worst thing you can call someone, you know? And so the main priority was now the safety of the Queen. It's why they wouldn't let her ride in Prince Philip's Range Rover. As soon as Somerset had marched south again, Mary, she was taken back to Stirling Castle from Inchahome Priory. And then early in 1548, another English army invaded Scotland and seized Haddington in East Lothian. And there they built a huge fort that could hold a 2,000 strong English garrison and withhold a siege. And so Haddington controlled the route south and was now the headquarters of the English occupation of Scotland. The young Queen Mary, she was moved once again on the 21st of February 1548. This time she was taken to the safety of Dumbarton Castle in the west, which had been won back from the treacherous Earl of Lennox. In November 1547, the Privy Council sent an appeal to France for military support. In February 1548, an agreement was reached to betroth Mary to the French Dauphin Francois in return for that French support against England. Mary was to be sent to France as quickly as possible. By this point, she'd been moved from Linlithgow to Stirling to Dunkeld to Inchahome to Dumbarton, and now finally she's been sent to France, thankfully not Portugal, where she would be safe, as long as she didn't, like, draw any cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad or anything like that, you know? The Regent James Hamilton, the Earl of Arran, he was given the French title Duke of Châtelerault, which is rare because normally it's Celtic that are given titles and it's a title that's still proudly held by the Hamiltons to this day there's a park in Hamilton Shatlerow Country Park where if it wasn't for the Neds underage drinking you would think you're in the quiet French commune town of Shatlerow I'm sure in Shatlerow itself you can probably get the bus to the French equivalent of Motherwell and get seshed at Le Megabar I don't know I need to go visit the French military sport support sorry, was pretty much immediate. 100 ships carrying around 6,000 troops laid siege to Haddington where the treaty confirming the marriage of Mary to Francois was ratified on the 6th of July 1548. The French at first were unable to take the fort, but by September of the following summer, the English troops were forced to abandon Haddington after Henri II unleashed a successful assault on English-held Boulogne in France, 
And England was forced to make peace, first with France in March 1550, and then Scotland in 1551. Scotland had survived thanks to the French, who honestly wouldn't stop going on about it. They kept saying, you would be speaking English right now if it wasn't for us. Not realising that we'd been speaking English the entire time, do you know what I mean? They just couldn't understand us. The Duke of Somerset's reputation was now in ruins. The costly war in Scotland had bankrupt England. In October 1549, he was deposed as Lord Protector, imprisoned, and in January 1552, he was executed. In the summer of 1548, Henri II sent his own personal fleet to Scotland to escort the five-year-old Mary to France. Four of Mary's travelling companions were her young maids of honour known as the Four Marys. They were Mary Beaton, Mary Fleming, Mary Livingston and Mary Seton. Now Mary Beaton, she was a, a distant relative of Cardinal David Beaton and the Archbishop James Beaton. Mary Fleming was the daughter of Governess Lady Fleming who accompanied Mary to France, became one of Henri II's mistresses. She had a child by the, uh, by the French king. Mary Livingston was the daughter of Lord Livingston who had been Mary's guardian at Stirling Castle and then at Dunkeld. And Mary Seton was the daughter of Lord Seton and his French wife who had come to Scotland as one of Marie de Geese's maids of honour. And they were all actually called Mary. It's not like how the Queen gives all of her servants the same name because she can't be fuck learning any of their names, you know. Mary and her four Marys were, they were like the original girl group, I suppose, and that everyone only really remembers or cares about the main one, and the other ones are just there to support her, you know. The four Marys, however, would be a constant source of love and support throughout Mary's difficult life. And Mary's mother, Marie de Guise, she now had a difficult choice to make. Either accompany her daughter to France or stay in Scotland to protect her Scottish kingdom. In the end, Marie de Guise opted to leave her daughter and stay in the tapas restaurant, sorry, to fight for her Mary's interests in Scotland while she was away. And on the 29th of July, 1548, a tearful five-year-old Mary said goodbye to her mother at Dumbarton. The lengthier western route from Dumbarton to France was chosen for fear of being intercepted by English ships. The fleet was stuck in the Firth of Clyde for nine days on account of poor weather. And when it eventually set sail on the 7th of August, it was a choppy crossing. Mary finally arrived at Roscoff in Brittany on the 13th of August, 1548, taking six days to get to France, which... You know, it was considered not bad considering she had travelled with Ryanair. A chapel marks the spot in Brittany where Mary landed. Now Mary, she wouldn't return to Scotland for another 13 years. Apparently even for a Scottish queen, it was hard to get back into the country after Brexit. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so, so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the, the first episode back, the first episode of the second series. It's always easy when it comes to Mary. She's by far and away my favourite figure from Scottish history. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do that by going to my Buy Me A Coffee account. I'm on there at Montebank History of Scotland. Um, basically, you can contribute to the podcast by leaving the equivalent of a cup of coffee or the, the price of a pint. It's all massively appreciated. If you're a quite religious listener and you listen, you've listen, you listened to all the episodes and you're going to listen to all the second series, you might want to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. I'm on Patreon at... Um, Again, at Mondebank History of Scotland. And you get loads of stuff on there. I've got YouTube videos and short stories, all sorts of stuff going on. So it's really, really appreciated if you want to do either of those things. What I try to do is each week I try to match what I'm talking about in the podcast with a malt whiskey from Scotland. And what I'll do is if I raise enough money through my Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon accounts, I will send someone who deserves it a bottle of that whiskey. And you can nominate people to receive that whiskey. People you think deserve it, particularly during this pandemic. 
All you have to do is go onto my social media accounts. So I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Montebank Tours. Uh, you can leave me a DM. You can um, post a comment. You can do any of those. You can nominate them in that on that way, or you can leave the money on buy me a coffee and then leave a wee comment and just say who you would like to nominate. You can send me a message, an email, whatever it want, and um, I will pick one at random and I will send them a bottle of that whiskey if I'm able to raise enough money for them. And uh, today's whiskey that I'm matching with the podcast is the, the Inch Mirren, which is a, a, it was taken over by Loch Lomond. So the, it's the, the Inch Mirren Island collection, but it's an old distillery that used to be in Dumbartonshire. And the reason I'm going for that one is because the Dumbartonshire link there, that's where Mary left from Dumbarton Castle to go to France. And also you've got that Inch in the in the title as well, which makes us think of Inch Mahone Priory, where uh, Mary was sent to for her protection after the Battle of Pinky. So um, Loch Lomond are doing some really, really cool whiskies right now. I, uh, I got a, I've bought a few bottles from them recently and they're absolutely cracking. So um, that is what I would pair the, the Rough Wings podcast with, the Inch Mirren 12-year-old. Again, if you want to nominate someone to receive that bottle of whiskey, then you know what to do. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, go on, do me a favour and please rate the podcast. Give it a wee review. That helps massively. Follow it as well. That's all big, big helps uh go on to my youtube channel i'm on uh youtube at montebank history of scotland become a subscriber to that that's a big big help as well uh give me a wee follow on instagram and twitter um facebook as well at montebank tours and that's basically it we're back up and running now i'll be back next week with more of mary thank you so so much for listening and i'll see you all next time cheerio now bye bye